Good morning, church. Everyone awake and lively? Yeah? <laughs> People are going, yeah. Some are going, no. It's like 10-something, isn't it? 10.30. You should be good by now. How many cups of coffee have you had? I've had like nine. And I just realized as I was walking up here, I really got to go to the bathroom. So this is probably going to be fast and loose. Um, Please take your Bibles and turn over to Acts 10. Acts 10, we're going to be looking at 34 to 48 today. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 48. Shift on over there. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 to 38. That is our section of of study today as we continue in our study of the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses. We've been reading the book of Acts and studying it and dissecting it and applying it in, in an attempt to become Jesus' witnesses in this world. Uh, that's what we're called to do. That is really the primary purpose of the church, is to proclaim the gospel, spread the gospel to every nation. And, uh, and so we have been working through this book in an attempt to become Jesus' witnesses, to be transformed by the truth, to study church history, see how the church has functioned in the past and how it began as Jesus' witnesses, all of those good things that we see in Acts, uh, the book of Acts. It's been a phenomenal study. We've been in it for a little over a year, I think, and we probably got another four years. Um, <laughs> anyway, as a part of God's global plan, See, God has a redemptive plan that, that goes as far as the east is from the west. I mean, it just it goes all the way around the world. It includes all nations, all peoples, all tribes and tongues as a part of God's global plan to save and join people uh, from every, as I said, tribe and tongue to the Christian church. The Holy Spirit in our text has summoned the Apostle Peter to travel from Yopa. J-O-P-P-A, Yopa, to Caesarea, summonsed him to go from one place to another. Why? To preach the gospel to non-Jewish people. Peter arrived at Caesarea and entered the home of a man named Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion who prayed to the God of the Jews and who showed kindness to the Jewish people. Quite extraordinary for a Roman centurion to do anything of the like. Of the likes, and that's exactly who he was. And he loved the God of Israel and served the God of Israel to the best of his ability, according to the knowledge that he had. Now, when Peter entered Cornelius's house, when Peter arrived in Caesarea at his house, he was met by a large group of people. The front door kind of swung open, and there was just a ton of people in this house. During Peter's journey uh, to Cornelius's home from Yopa. Cornelius had gathered his relatives and close friends to meet Peter and to listen to his words. And so as Peter was traveling this 50-mile, two-day journey, Cornelius was not idle and sitting around doing nothing. He was out gathering people. He knew Peter was coming. He was summoned to come through a vision and all this stuff. And he was out gathering his friends and relatives, his closest friends and relatives, to come and to meet Peter and to listen to what he would have to say. Now, when Peter went through the front door, he saw a lot of people, but when Cornelius laid eyes on Peter, he fell at his feet and began to uh, 
do something extraordinarily awkward and weird, but he fell at his feet and began to worship him. He began to worship Peter. But Peter raised him up, literally physically, scooped him up with his own hands and said, don't do that, man. I am a man as you are a man. So Peter lovingly corrected him. And then Cornelius began to explain the angelic vision he had received a few days earlier when he got those instructions to have Peter come to Caesarea to speak to him and to his household. Cornelius kind of went through the whole, like, you know, this is what happened. I was praying during the ninth hour, and I had this vision, and the angel told me to send for you because you were going to come speak to us. Not sure what you're going to say. It's probably going to be good because it's like tied to God, the whole angel thing, really cool. But he kind of went through this whole, like, exposition. Here's what happened. Here's what happened to me a couple of days ago. Gave him all the details. Pretty interesting. And then Cornelius actually thanked Peter. He thanked him for making the journey, which was kind of interesting. And then he asked him to share whatever instructions the Lord had given him. And this is where we pick up in the narrative. That's where where we paused and stopped last week. This is where we're taking up again. Now this morning we're going to divide our text into three sections. Okay, we have basically section one, which is the gospel, verses 34 to 43. And then section two, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, verse 44. And then our last section will be the Gentile response, verses 45 to 48. Uh, Let me begin with a little more prayer. It's always good to pray before you study God's word, and then we'll get to work. Sound good? All right. Father, I uh, just call upon your name right now, Lord. And teaching your word is uh, it's a challenging thing. It's an exciting thing. And it's a fearful thing to some degree. I'm just a man. And your word is eternal and everlasting and amazing. It never returns void. It accomplishes all of your purposes. And yet you share your word and preach your word through fallible individuals, people who do not typically accomplish your purposes or seek you and and do these things, not naturally at least, Lord. God, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would fill this place with your Holy Spirit. We do not want to miss what you desire to teach us today, Lord. You want us to hear the gospel today, Lord Jesus. You want us to hear the ministry of the Holy Spirit, how he applies the gospel, how he regenerates and illuminates people. And Lord, you desire a response from us today to be obedient to your word, to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. Help us to do that today, Lord Jesus. Fall upon every ear here that listens to your word, especially mine, especially my ears. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's begin with our first section. I'll read out the paragraph and then we'll begin to really examine it. Verse 34, chapter 10, verse 34. It says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from 
Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, made him to appear. Not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed to, uh, by God to be judge of the living and of the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives uh, forgiveness of sins through his name. Well, let's begin to kind of break down this great little paragraph so we can understand it uh, rightfully. And we're going to need the Lord's help to do that. I want to begin by just looking at that first statement, open his mouth. Open his mouth is a colloquial Greek expression marking the speech that follows as important. Luke put that there to notify all readers after this particular event, this experience, that something very important is coming. It's a colloquial uh, expression. He opened his mouth. He was about to say something very, very important. So what Luke wants us to do is he wants us right now in this very room to pay attention to what's being said. That's precisely what he said. And why is that? Because what we just heard in that paragraph was basically, in a nutshell, the gospel, which is the most important message ever given, ever recorded, ever put out there, spread and expanded, because in the gospel there is the power of salvation. And so it's like he's saying, man, he is about to say something incredibly important, so listen up, readers. Theophilus is who he wrote the letter to, that Greek fellow, listen up, read this carefully. Peter proclaimed this thing here. It's going to be good. It's important. Now, Peter begins by admitting that he understands that God shows no partiality. This was the lesson that Peter learned from his vision in the previous section that we studied. You can go back and read through chapter 10 and read these things. You can go online and listen to our previous sermons to get a better gist of what's happening. But this is essentially the lesson that Peter had to learn through the vision, through the rebuke of the Lord three times. He learned that God does not place people, this is so important, that God does not place people into categories, and that we should not either. Peter had this upbringing in Jewish culture to put Gentile people in these unclean categories, these common Categories. Of course, they were, you know, the Israelites, the Jews, they were the righteous people, the holy people, and everyone else outside of their family, everyone outside of their particular race was unclean or was common or was worse, just dirty and sinful. And some of the Gentiles were even called dogs and stuff. So he had this sort of horrible prejudice about people on the outside of the Jewish nation. And rightfully so, because that's pretty much how Jews were taught. They were raised sort of indoctrinated in that kind of thinking. 
And, and what happened was during this vision, God basically broke down those boundaries. God showed him a vision of all these animals and said, kill and eat. And the animals represented people. None of them are off limits to you. The gospel needs to go out to all of them. And so Peter had this insane come to Jesus meeting. It was like, wow, man, you are breaking down these boundaries. I've got these things that are ingrained in me. This is how I think. And, and something's coming out of this good. You're wanting me to go somewhere else and preach the gospel to others. This was the whole sort of tension and wrestling match that we've studied in the, in the prior weeks. This is, these are the things that he was, he was basically wrestling with. He ultimately learned that God did not put people in categories. He learned that God's desire is to save people from every walk of life, from every tribe and tongue, even Gentile people, such as those who lived in Caesarea, which was where he was at right now in this moment. Peter goes on to say that God accepts those who fear him and do what is right. That's an interesting statement right there. Because the statement makes it sound like people have this like natural ability to please God with their actions and to do things for God and and somehow when they do these things, God gets you know, excited about them and looks at them and says, look, there's a whole bunch of people that are doing the right things. And so guess what? I'm going to choose them based on their good works and, and these sorts of things. That's kind of what it, it implies. But if you know the Bible, you know that the Bible contradicts that line of thinking everywhere. Over and over and over, we hear that no one is good. No people are good. All people have fallen short of the glory of God. All people have gone astray. No one seeks after God. Blah, 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 blah. Over and over and over and over. So the Bible, is it a contradictory thing here that's happening? No, it's not at all. People have misunderstood this verse to be teaching some form of universalism. That God accepts all who are sincere on the basis of their works. But that view is obviously inconsistent with biblical teaching and absurd. If Cornelius and the others were already saved because of their good works and things that they had done, what was Peter doing there preaching that only through the name of Jesus can souls be saved? Right? Man, if these guys had it down through their good works and God had accepted them because of what they were doing and Yada, yada, yada. Why was Peter there proclaiming the gospel? Weren't they okay to begin with? Why did an angel come and say, hey, I'm going to send for someone to come and to present the gospel to you? They wouldn't have needed the gospel if their own works could have saved them or made God do something for them. That's kind of the point. The view is obviously inconsistent, that particular theological view. Further, that they were not yet saved, talking Cornelius and his household, is clearly stated in Acts 11.14. Prior to Peter's visit, they were not saved. There are some who would deny that there is pre-salvation work on the part of the sinner leading to salvation. This, too, is absurd, since the text clearly states that salvation comes to those who fear God and do what is right. Is this salvation by works? Of course not. Absolutely not. Peter is simply expressing the reality that there is a spirit work in the heart of the sinner. And we see that repeated in John 16, 8, Acts 11, 18, 2 Tim, uh, 2 Tim 2, 25. 
That work produces, the spirit work produces a person who fears God and does what is right and who is acceptable to God. Acceptable is dektos uh, in Greek, and it means to be marked by a favorable manifestation of the divine pleasure, as used in 2 Corinthians 6.2, which says, At the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This text shows that the acceptable time is the time of salvation. No matter what the age, race, sex, social strata, when the heart hungers for God and for righteousness, Matt 5, 6, it is the acceptable time of salvation. Commenting on this verse, Everett Harrison remarks, the meaning is not that such persons are thereby saved, but rather that they are suitable candidates for salvation. Such preparation betokens a spiritual earnestness that will result in faith as the gospel is heard and received. Cornelius responded to the work of God in his soul, yet it must not be thought that he did that on his own, apart from the grace of God. The truth is, no one, whether Gentile or Jew, that, the truth is that neither Gentile or Jew or anyone does that from a natural position. Romans 3, 10 to 18 makes this so vividly clear. None, it says this, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He goes on to say, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps <coughs> is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the position of natural man. Natural man doesn't love God, doesn't seek God, has no righteousness, has no holiness, no desire or anything. He is not inclined from a natural position towards God at all. He goes about doing what he wants to do, guided by his fallen will, just jumps into everything that makes him feel good, satisfies his flesh. I know this to be true. I wasn't a Christian my whole life. We weren't raised in the church. We didn't know the Lord. Spent the majority of my days pursuing one thing after the other that satisfied my flesh. When people talk to me about God, what would I say? I have no idea. There's got to be something out there. How did all this stuff come from nothing? That's one thing that I would say. But I had no fear of God, no desire for God, none of those things. That is our position in our natural state apart from the Spirit of God. But God had worked in Cornelius' heart so that he sought to know and obey God. And when he heard the saving truth of the gospel, he eagerly responded. Peter introduced his message by assuring them that salvation was available to the prepared heart. In a nutshell, that's what he does by making that statement. 
Yet it was not enough for them to know of its availability, that salvation is available. They needed to know how to appropriate the forgiveness of sin and deliverance from judgment. Peter turns then to the main theme of the gospel, namely that salvation comes through Jesus Christ to anyone from any nation. In verse 36, Peter refers to the gospel as the good news of peace. You see it there in your Bible? The good news of peace. That was the message, the gospel message that was given to the Jewish people. That they would take that message of peace and take that out to the world. Jesus actually came to establish peace between sinners and God through what? Through his perfect living, through his death, and through his resurrection, through the gospel. Romans 5.1 says something great and simple, very practical. We have peace with God, what? How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker. First and foremost, to bring peace between men and God through his finished work. And then to bring peace between men and other men, people and people. We have a ministry of reconciliation, the Bible teaches. The gospel is there for what? A message of peace, a proclamation of peace. This is why the gospel must be shared and spread and moved forward in a peaceful way. Arguing or spreading the gospel by force is literally antithetical to the gospel message itself. It is a message of peace. It is a message of peace. And this is where... Other religions fall short. Most other religions are not religions based upon some message of peace, in particular Islam. Islam is a religion based on dominance and fear, and even violence. It's not a message of peace. It doesn't matter who or which proponents try to proclaim it as a message of peace. And I'm not trying to attack Muslims at all by any means here. But today it seems like Christians don't know the differences between the world religions, especially the main ones. So I think it's valuable for us to know the difference. Have Christians acted like Muslims in the past? Yeah, you remember the Crusades? Not good. But Islam at its center is not a message of peace. It is a message of control. It is a message of dominance. And sadly, the church has handled the gospel message, which is a message of peace in a dominating, controlling way throughout the centuries. But make no mistake about Islam. It is a religion of dominance in these sorts of things. Supporters of, of Islam can try to paint pretty pictures of it. But at its core, it is a religion of dominance, fear, and control. In Islam, there are two ways to go to heaven. This is what Islam teaches. This is Islamic doctrine. Two ways to go to heaven. There is the Mizan, M-I-Z-A-N. I'm probably not pronouncing it right. Mizan, Mizan. Mizan is scales. Imagine in your mind's eye a pair of scales. Mizan says that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you get heaven. Ultimately, Islam is a religion of works. You have to earn your way. 
And at the end of the day, at the end of your life, and all other religions are this way, if your good deeds outweigh your bad, then, then you get to go in and, you know, St. Peter, I don't know if he does it in Islam, Christians think that he's at the gate with, you know, special keys and he lets you in. I don't know. I've never studied that. It's interesting. Maybe not. But somehow somebody lets you in. You're good to go. So that's the first way. Good works outweigh bad works. And the second is a word that we're all familiar with, and it's called jihad. Jihad is the second way to go to heaven. And jihad means to die for the cause. You see, what happens is you have these good works and you have these bad, and then you come to this realization that you can't even keep track of the good versus the bad. And so you believe in your heart that your bad outweighs the good. Now you know that you're not going to get heaven, so what do you do? You resort to jihad. You commit yourself to dying for the cause. This is the saddest religion on the face of the earth. People know that they can't measure up and that they want heaven so bad that they realize the only way is to blow themselves up and to harm others. That is a tragedy. We should be evangelizing Muslims like you can't believe that we need to remove them from that system of religion. Have you ever thought about this? You read the news headlines. What were the terrorists who flew those planes into the buildings in Pentagon and into the ground, what were they doing the night before they went on their mission? They were in strip clubs. Why? Because they failed at Mazan. They just decided to give in and live life free in sin to do what they want because they believed the promise that day two, tomorrow, when we get in those planes and kill ourselves, We'll go and get 72 virgins or whatever it is. I always say Virginians. George Washington's there like, I don't think so. <laughs> right? Whatever it is. But think about that religion in that how destructive it is. And that people are brought to the brink of hopelessness because they know that their good doesn't outweigh the bad. And then, what does it say? Kill yourself. Die for the cause in a war. Blow yourself up. Doing some, do something of that nature. And you're going to be okay. That is a, a tragedy. When you read about someone who blows themselves up in a Bali nightclub or in a train station in Spain, what do you think they're doing? They've given up on trying to earn their way. And they've blown themselves up. It's horrible. It's terrible. It's tragic. It's excruciatingly sad. But the Christian gospel is a message of peace. Peace between God and man and peace between man and man. And yet you say in your heart right now, but what about the Crusades? Didn't Christians engage in war and kill people in the name of Jesus? Yes, unfortunately. But let's not forget how the Crusades started. I'm not trying to give you a a reasoning for murdering and killing in the name of Jesus. I don't believe there's ever a reason for that. I'm not talking about justice here. I'm talking about taking the cross out and marching with it and killing people in the name of Jesus. I don't, that's bad, no matter which way you look at it. Now, there are just reasons to go out and, and to make war. But let's not forget about why the Crusades, how they began. Is anyone familiar with the First Crusade, what actually happened? The First Crusade... Christians responded out of justice at first. What happened was the Muslims had sacked and taken over Jerusalem. They had killed people, thousands of people, Christians and Jews, and taken over the holy city. 
and they were advancing north up into other parts of like Europe and stuff. That was their plan. That's what they were aiming to do. Now in France, the Pope back in that day actually came and spoke to French Christians and encouraged them to fight not so much as for justice, one part justice, but really what happened was he really convinced people to fight to preserve Christianity. He sort of cast it in a, hey, the Christian faith is going to be, become extinct if we don't do something about it, which was really sad. Um, we know that Jesus clearly taught that I shall build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's what he said. So I don't know if the Pope didn't know what the Bible says about that or if the Catholic Church was doing other things during that time. I'm not sure exactly why, but that was the message given. But it was really sad what happened ultimately. Those things didn't honor Jesus. Like I said, if you'd have gone down there and tried to get the Muslims out of there out of, for the sake of justice, and you might say, what's the difference between justice and doing it in the name of Jesus? I think justice is justice. You go down and you help people that are in trouble, that are being harmed, that are being murdered, that are being slaughtered. That should be happening in, in parts in Africa today where Christians are being slaughtered. We ought to do something about that. That's justice. That's love for the church too. But you can't, out of fear, make people believe that the church is going to disappear and then go to war for it and kill in the name of Jesus. That's the big difference. And incredibly, the Pope actually took up a little bit of Islamic teaching at that particular moment. We're talking 1100s. He actually said, if you go and die for Christ in battle, your sins will be absolved and you will get heaven immediately. So they ended up, he ended up copying what the Muslims were doing. Goofy. But that is definitely a blight on our record. It's not good. It's not good. It was a moment in history where we really lost sight of the truth. And bottom line is, God's word never changes. The gospel is a message of peace, no matter which way you spin it or what you do with it or how you perceive it, understand it. It is a message of peace. Peace between God and men. Peace between men and men. So important that we understand that. Now, why does natural man, the natural man, natural to me is, is like the guy who doesn't know Jesus yet. You know, most people, the majority of people, the scripture would say those who are on the broad road of which I was for so long. Why does the natural man need peace between himself and God? Because he, at his very core, is an unregenerate sinner, an enemy of God in his mind and heart. He hates God. Now, if you had asked me years ago, you know, when I didn't believe, I didn't know Jesus, do you hate God? I don't know if I hate it. I mean, I wouldn't have said I hate God, but every bit of my actions and lifestyle showed that I hated God. People may not verbalize that, right? Oh, I hate God. There are some that do. The guy who was trying to get in God we trust off the buck. Wow, Michael Newdow or whatever his name was. There are people out there that just... Their actions prove that they hate God and what they say. But bottom line is your actions really speak louder than your words. And everyone is on kind of level ground here. People pretty much despise God. They think of themselves as God. What matters is my flesh and my life and I'm my own God. And I take care of myself and beauty and doing all of these things. And I'm the center of the universe. That's what commercialism teaches us. At the core, natural people are unregenerate sinners and enemies of God in their minds and hearts. 
And because of man's rebellion, he will, make no mistake, he will face the wrath, he will face the justice, and he will experience the everlasting punishment of God. In fact, the Bible says that natural man, natural men, unregenerate sinners are already under the wrath of God. As Jonathan Edwards put it, it is only a matter of time until his foot shall slip, casting him into eternal fire and damnation. But Jesus came to make a way for us to have peace with God and to become his sons and daughters. That really is the message of the gospel. Rather than being natural people, unregenerate, and objects of God's wrath, we can actually become God's beloved children. It's a miracle. It's amazing. The gospel. Through the work of Jesus Christ, we are given peace with God and we are adopted as his children. Galatians 3.26 says, In Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. Those who have faith, you are a child of God, not an object of wrath. You are not a natural man, woman. You are a regenerated person. You have been given new life. The Bible says you are a new creation. You're different. There's no mistaking it. In what you say and what you do, does it mean you still wrestle with sin? Yeah, actually, now you do wrestle with sin. In your natural state, you don't wrestle with sin. You just sin and love it. Right? When you become saved, I love sin. I hate sin. You're like, you know, you're kind of like bipolar, man. You're like back and forth, you know. And I mean no disrespect towards you, those of you that maybe wrestle with that illness. It's a horrible illness. It's a tough one. But you're this and you're that. And you're there every day. You know, I love Jesus. I'm walking in holiness. And the next day, oh, I'm, I'm in sin. I, I do these things. And what's going on here? And I kind of like it. And then and the next day, I don't like it. And then I get to church on Sunday, I hate it. Then Monday, I love it. You know, it's back and forth, right? It's this cycle. It's this game we play. But the truth is, you're playing the game. You're in it. See, the unregenerate natural man, he's not in a game. He's not in this thing. He's not trying to be holy. He doesn't hate sin or any of those things. We become children of God through faith. It's pretty amazing. Through the work of Christ, we are given peace with God and we are adopted as his children. These things are revealed to us. How are they revealed to us? Through the Holy Spirit and they are received by faith. Notice how Peter presented the three key doctrinal truths of the gospel in that paragraph. Let's look at the first key doctrinal truth. This is how he lays it out. And maybe you didn't see it at first glance, because I certainly didn't. The first thing that we see is the life of Jesus, verse 38. Look back at it, 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. How often do you hear when somebody talks about the gospel, they usually talk about what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right? Well, guess what? The gospel includes his life. See, the first Adam, Adam, you remember Adam and Eve? Adam came and he was commanded to be righteous and holy and fulfill God's law perfectly. And he dropped the ball, fumbled, failed, didn't cross the finish line. Totally jacked up, blew it, got kicked out of the garden. Everyone who came after him is a sinner by birth. It's just a done deal. We're, we're all jacked up. 
But Jesus came as the second Adam and did what Adam did not do. He lived a perfect life. He obeyed all of God's laws, ordinances perfectly. He basically earned righteousness by his perfect living. Earned righteousness. A perfect righteous standing. The kind of righteous standing that Adam had before he ate of the fruit with his wife. Before they were deceived. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. Came and lived a perfect, perfect life. The second key doctrinal truth of the gospel we see in the text is one that we're all familiar with, more familiar with than the life of Jesus, and that would be the death of Jesus. Verse 39. He says, and we are witnesses of all that he did. Okay, we witnessed how he lived his life is what Peter's saying. We watched him live his life, man. He obeyed the law perfectly. It was insane. I tried, but man, I couldn't do it. I was even called Satan by him once. This is what Peter's probably thinking. And we are witnesses of all that he did. And it says what? Both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Now, and I guess I left out the rest of the verse, which says that he was nailed to a tree. I didn't even put it in my notes. What a goofball. But that's the point of that, that Jesus actually came and lived a perfect life, earned a level of righteousness that was impossible for us to earn with God, perfect obedience, and then what? He died on the cross. Now, what was achieved through his death on the cross? When his blood spilled and was shed, he paid for sin debt for sinners, the sin debt. He paid the sin debt for sinners. He also imputes or uh, hands over his righteousness that he earned to those of faith and so we don't have a righteousness of our own he died on the cross paid for our sin debt and then he imputes he gives he it's like a transaction in a bank you go and make a deposit he deposited his righteousness in our account before god god sees us as righteous god sees us as perfect as he sees his son this is huge we don't have a righteousness of our own. We needed Jesus, as sad as it is when you watch the Passion of the Christ and he's betrayed and all of those things. Right? I don't even like watching that movie. It jacks me up. I'm like, don't kill him. I'm like, wait a minute. If he doesn't die, I die. Kill him, right? You know? Kill him. You got tears. It's like this awkward thing, right? He had to die. If he didn't die, we'd be totally lost. We'd be totally done. He had to die. He had to pay the debt and give us his righteousness. It's right there in the text. He talked about his life. He talked about his death. And then the third key doctrinal truth, life, death, and what's the third? The resurrection of Jesus. Verse 40, it says, But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. You know, the Apostle Paul taught that without the resurrection, our faith is nothing. We so often focus on the cross, and rightfully so, right? Isn't that where we put most of our juice? And then what? The resurrection gets one day a year called Easter. Without the resurrection, we're toast. Our faith is in vain. We would be less than fools, is what it says in the Scripture. We are idiots, idiotos, morons for believing this message without the resurrection. The resurrection is so critical to the gospel message and to our own lives as Christians. Without it, we have no power to walk in that righteousness that he gives. Without it, we have no hope of a future resurrection. 
we would be toast without the resurrection. So the gospel, in essence, is what? The life, the death. And if you want to put the burial in there, that's fine. The life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus all are seen in this text. He is preaching the gospel. Very simple. And he's not adding a lot to it. He's not subtracting anything. He's just giving them the basic gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter goes on to say that he and the other apostles were firsthand witnesses to these things. He basically tells them, we were there and saw with our own eyes. That would be one way to interpret that little verse. And then he tells them that Jesus commanded that they go out and preach the gospel and bear witness to what they had experienced and saw with their own eyes. Peter says, hey man, we were witnesses to his life. We are witnesses to his death. We were there. We, we saw that with our own eyes. At least John the Apostle did. He told us about it. And we were witnesses to his resurrection. After three days, he came and visited us. In fact, Thomas, you should have seen what he did. I won't believe you unless I can check out those wounds or whatever it is that he said. And then as soon as he saw the wounds, you know, oh, Lord. You should have seen Thomas. It was silly that day. And Peter, like he really had some strong faith. But he says, man, we were witnesses to all of these things. We saw him go out and heal people and do these things. We saw him stop a storm. We saw him walk on water. We saw him raise a man from the dead, you know, resuscitate Lazarus. We saw him do all these things. And, and, and we saw him betrayed by one of our own, Judas, that son of perdition. We saw him marched out, you know, from a distance. We ran, but we saw him marched out. We we, we saw him at the Sanhedrin being judged in that kangaroo court that night. And man, we saw him judged before Pilate and a multitude. We heard the people yelling, give us, you know, Barnabas. Just kidding. Everyone makes that mistake. It's Barabbas. We saw all these things with our own eyes. We saw him whipped and scourged and beaten. We saw him carry that 100, 200 pound big stick of wood of Golgotha. We saw him nailed to the cross. We saw him die. We saw the earthquake. We felt it. We saw the storm. We saw the darkness. We, we heard the wind blowing. We saw him get buried in a tomb, a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. We saw him roll the stone, close him in. We saw it with our own eyes. And then one day when we were gathered in the upper room, chilling, wondering what's next, we saw him. Actually, I saw him at the tomb. Didn't really believe it was him. Thought he was a gardener. But then he came and visited us while we were in the upper room. And man, he was back. He came. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. Notice also how Peter says that he has been appointed as the judge of all. This might have been one of those spikes in his sermon saying, you realize you've rejected this person, Jesus. And guess what? He is your judge. What were these Gentile people thinking as he was saying this? Oh, my goodness. He's... Not only come, he's done these things, he lived the life, he, he died and, and he rose again, and, and God appointed him as the judge. And, and we're not people of faith, they must have been thinking. So what does that mean for us? Well, it sounds like wrath and judgment is what it means. And Peter was making it very, very clear. Lastly, in 43, Peter said, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
The entire purpose of the Old Testament and even New Testament, if you think of John the Baptist, the purpose of prophetic ministry in Scripture was to bear witness to the fact that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ receives the forgiveness of sins. That is why Isaiah came and preached. That is why Jeremiah came and preached. That is why Elijah came and preached. That is why the minor prophets came and preached. All prophecy and all of Scripture is all about Jesus. He is the point. He is the redeemer. He is the hero. He is the ultimate good guy. Humanity has fallen. Bad judgment, wrath. God is a good guy, pursues his, pursues his people, makes promises in the future that I'm going to send a Messiah who will redeem those of faith. That's the message of the gospel in a nutshell. That's the message of the Bible in a nutshell. Jesus is the point. All of prophecy, he says, all the prophets bear witness. It's interesting when you consider other things that prophets talked about. You know, maybe the uh, Babylon and going off into Babylon for those 70 years and those things. But bottom line, the message of the prophets was redemption in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah who is to come. Place your faith in him. Even while you're in exile in Babylon, place your faith in the coming Messiah. That's the message of the prophets. Pretty amazing. It's all wrapped up in that. It's all about Jesus. We need to remember that every time we come to Scripture. Great question for you is, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Is he your Lord and Savior? Do you have peace with God the Father through God the Son? Have you been forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God by faith in the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection? Or are you as Jonathan Edwards would say, dangling by a thread over the pit of hell. Shall your foot slip under the weight of your own sin? Or has your foot been placed upon solid ground and made secure by the blood of the Lamb of God through faith? Who are you? Are you trusting in Jesus? Pray that you would know him if you don't. And I rejoice with those of you who do know him. What an abundant life he has given. So often we think of salvation as just heaven. It's not just heaven, it's now. Joy, unspeakable. Peace. A peace that transcends all understanding, which means that you have peace during times where you can't understand or figure out what the heck is going on in life. Somebody gets cancer. There's a tragedy that happens. Someone passes away. You lose your job. These things destroy the natural man. But through Christ, we have a peace that gets us through it, through the power of his presence, through the power of the Holy Spirit. What he offers is priceless. It is. The forgiveness of your sins. No guilt, no shame, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Spent many, many days not knowing Jesus, walking in shame. 
walking in guilt. Even walking with the pain of what others had done to me. Those are the kinds of things that Jesus deals with in your life. Your hope is in him alone. That's it, guys. That's it. Sins forgiven, guilt and shame vanquished. Wrestle with those things at times, I guess, to some degree. But he is there. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I can never, ever, ever not tear up when I think about what he's done. I've turned into a slobbering mess. Every sermon I write, every conversation I have about Jesus reminds me of who I am apart from him. And it reminds me of who I am in him. And therefore, these are tears of joy. I hope you feel the same way if you know him today. If you don't know him, I pray that you would. It's all about him, guys. It's all about him. Now, let's look at our second section. The work of the Holy Spirit. This is so crucial and critical here and so, so misunderstood in the church. People believe that the work of the Holy Spirit is speaking just in tongues and all of these things. He is so much more than any of that, plus a bag of chips, plus dessert, plus a 32-ounce pet. He is, the Holy Spirit is, let me just tell you, he's marvelous in his ministry. He is marvelous in his ministry. It's so critical that we as a church know him and what he does and what his role is in salvation. Second thing, the work of the Holy Spirit, 44, verse 44, you see it? While Peter was still saying these things, he was, you know, the life, the death, the resurrection. He's, he's going to town here. He's preaching the gospel. While he was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Wow. Man, he's preaching and the Holy Spirit's like, boom, just drops on them, falls upon them, indwells these people. And we have been taught, I have been, we have been taught, I think, collectively, repeatedly, that the natural man has the ability to like exercise faith, to exercise his own free will, to exercise these sorts of things to accept or decline the offer of salvation. You've heard that, right? Like, you need to come to Jesus. You need to do this on your own. It's your decision. It's out there, and it's just like an invitation, and you need to accept or decline. That's what we've been taught from our pulpits over and over and over. But I'm here to tell you today, actually, I'm not. Jesus is himself because it's in his word. Verse 44 contradicts free will theology. Because it shows us that the Holy Spirit has to come upon a sinner in order for them to become regenerated and even responsive to the gospel. It's right there. I didn't make it up. John 6, 6 uh, 63 says, the Spirit gives life. Okay, listen to this. John 6, 63. The Spirit gives life. And then he says, the flesh counts for nothing. Guess what's included in the flesh? Your will. 
Your mind, your heart, your thoughts, your desires, all of it, the flesh counts for nothing. One of the big points of the Bible is to get us to the place of knowing that it really is all about Jesus. That we have no ability, no nothing, that apart from him is grace. We can do nothing, literally nothing. Driving point of the gospel. Jesus told Nicodemus that he had to be what? Born of the Spirit. If he were to enter the kingdom of heaven, John 3, 5, born of the Spirit means to have the Spirit of God come upon upon a person and to regenerate and quicken them to the truth of the gospel. The Spirit literally comes into a person and enables them to believe the gospel. The scriptures teach repeatedly that the whole, the whole natural man is corrupted by sin. That there is no place within him that is free from sin. That his mind, that his will, that his soul and spirit are corrupted by sin. The Bible even likens the natural man's soul and spirit to a dead, rotting corpse in Ephesians 2.5. You were dead in your transgressions. Necros, you were a corpse, a lifeless corpse. Now, how can a lifeless corpse bring himself to life? He cannot. Only God can work that miracle. And he did through Jesus several times with people. And in a spiritual sense, it's the same thing. Only God can bring a person who is dead spiritually to life. This is a driving point behind the gospel. Because if we don't get this, then guess what? We think we can earn our way. We think that we can do something to make it happen. We look at Cornelius, instead of seeing him as a guy who had the grace of God active in his life, bringing him to the point of salvation, we look like him as a guy who did all these great things and got God's attention. And God said, I'm going to save him because look what he's doing. He's exercising his free will to love me. Oh, if that were the case, Peter would have never came to him and said, y'all need to hear what I'm about to say. It says, he opened his mouth. I'm about to tell you something that has the ability to give you life. That's how important what I'm about to say is. There is no place within us that is free from sin. We are corrupt from head to toe. Thoughts, will, mind, heart, desires, Everything is corrupted by sin. We are completely fallen as natural people. Helpless and hopeless. Therefore, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to come upon natural men, sinners, and to regenerate and quicken them to the truth. That is exactly what you are seeing in verse 40. Right there. If the Holy Spirit doesn't come upon these people the way that he did, guess what happens? They heard a presentation about Jesus. That was it. They didn't hear something that saved their lives. They heard some data about this person called Jesus Christ. That's what they're left with if the Holy Spirit doesn't come upon them. Literally. 
Every time that I went to church before the Holy Spirit came upon me, most of the time I was looking at my watch, when did this dumb thing end? What I would say to myself, this is stupid and so are these people. Man, that, that was my position, man. I just, I wanted to get out of there. I didn't care what was being said. It sounded like a bunch of data that didn't apply to me. I just wanted to get out of there and go back to doing my thing. Well, guess what? One day the Holy Spirit came upon me. I went from going, man, I got to get out of here. This is stupid to raising my hands like all these other people I thought were idiots. Ah, you know, they were like, what happened to him? Well, the Holy Spirit came upon him. You remember what he was saying yesterday. Now look at him. That's how sudden it was for me. Pretty extraordinary. They would have heard nothing more than a presentation about Jesus if the Holy Spirit hadn't come. Spurgeon said this, when the Holy Spirit enters, when the Holy Spirit enters after quickening, he gives enlightening. We cannot make men see the truth. They are so blind. But when the Lord puts his spirit within them, their eyes are opened. At first they may see rather hazily, but they still do see. As the light increases and as the eye is strengthened, they see more and more clearly. What a mercy it is to see Christ, to look unto him, and so to be lightened. By the Spirit's soul see things in their reality. They see the actual truth of them and perceive that they are facts. He goes on to say, the Spirit of God illuminates every believer so that he sees still more marvelous things out of God's law. But this never happens unless the Spirit opens his eyes. The apostle speaks of being brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it is a marvelous light indeed to come to the blind and dead. Marvelous because it reveals truth with clearness. It reveals marvelous things in a marvelous way. If hills and mountains, if rocks and stones were suddenly to be full of eyes, it would be a strange thing in the earth, but not more marvelous than for you and for me by the illumination of the Holy Spirit to see spiritual things. Amen. Now take notice to how verse 44 says that the Spirit came upon the Gentiles while Peter was still speaking. He was interrupted. He was in the middle of his sermon when the Spirit fell on, on these people. Peter didn't wrap up his sermon and slap a nice invitation on the end. He didn't perform an altar call or ask them to pray some kind of cool prayer. No, 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 no. He didn't do any of those things. It happened while he was preaching. And we've been made to believe through endless sermons that that is how salvation works. That you've got to pray this prayer and you've got to walk that aisle and you've got to fill out this communication card and ye shall be saved. Have you not heard that? I have hundreds of times. Now that's not to say that God does not send His Spirit through that process. I've seen that happen. But we have literally boiled it down to follow these steps and ye shall be saved. That's what we've been made to believe. Pray this prayer. Do this. Do that. And yet, John 3.8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit blows like the wind. You cannot predict him. You cannot estimate or calculate him. You cannot lead him. You cannot direct him. You cannot bridle him. You cannot contain him. You cannot command him. You cannot make him work through your methods. You cannot expect him to work through your methods. People don't get saved because you tell them to do something. People get saved when the very Spirit of God comes upon them when he's in heaven. But technically, do you know where the wind starts? It seems like it just exists all over the world and just moves about. It's always this, I mean, how, how does it come? It's mysterious, and that's how the Spirit works. The Spirit moves as He pleases. The Spirit moves as He desires. The Spirit falls upon whom He pleases. Why? Because He serves the will and purposes of the Father and the Son, not the will and purposes of men. And yet we come into these churches and we command him to heal whenever we want. We even, we even plan healing services where we know we can tell him to come and heal people and he'll just come and do it. Or we do these evangelistic events where we know, you know, we're going to do these things and we're expecting you to do your part, Holy Spirit. Who do we think we are? Commanding God. How foolish. He is rich in mercy, isn't he? It's an amazing that people don't, even myself, we just don't catch on fire. <laughs> pray this prayer. <laughs> Whoa, you probably would pray it after you saw that. <laughs> right? Pastor caught on fire. <laughs> Who do we think we are commanding the Spirit? It's mind-boggling. Bottom line, we truly cannot save ourselves, friends. Our minds, our hearts, our wills are corrupted. Our souls are corpses. That is our plight. We are helpless. And yet we have brothers and sisters in Christ everywhere throughout the world. People estimate that there are 2 billion Christians in the world today. We might be helpless, but God is good. And God sends his spirit to save people all the time. They hear the gospel, they respond. All of a sudden, they love the gospel. They used to hate it. It's a miracle. It's a miracle of salvation. The miracle of salvation. You see, salvation is a miracle. We don't think of it as a miracle. It may be the miracle that's performed the most in the world. If there's two billion Christians, that's two billion miracles. Miracles are very rare. But salvation is a miracle. Why? Because we are utterly helpless and hopeless. And what are miracles? They come from the supernatural. They come from God. That's what makes it a miracle. There's something that we cannot do. We can't even explain it. If we walk around saying, well, I prayed this prayer and that's when I got saved, you're explaining how you got saved. You don't believe it's a miracle. It's something you did. Salvation is a miracle. One of the things that makes it most a miracle is the fact that God does it at all with humans. And if you have an issue with that, maybe you think too highly of yourself and you think that you're you know, a good person or whatever. There is no one good, friends. Not in terms of righteousness with God. Man, the Holy Spirit is at work in this church. He's at work in the world. He's at work in our community, man. Let's look at our last section. Number three, the Gentile response. Verses 45 to 48. The 
The Word of God says, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. They were amazed. Esteemy in Greek. Astounded. Esteemy. Astounded. What? What? What's going on here is what they're thinking. What's happening here, man? They were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out. And look what it says. Even on Gentiles. <laughs> even on those lowly old un clean, common people, Gentiles, Peter. They were astounded that the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. They were astounded that God's global plan of salvation was actually a global plan of salvation and included non-Jewish people. Blew their minds. For they were hearing them, listen, for they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And it says, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Luke records for us that the believers from the circumcised... That would be Messianic or Hellenistic Jews. Um, Messianic or Hellenistic Jews. Christians, we're talking about converts here. Messianic Christians or Hellenistic Christians. They would have been circumcised. They were traveling with Peter, it says. They were going with Peter from Yopa to Caesarea. They were with him when this whole thing happened, and they became amazed. They were blown away by how the Holy Spirit had come upon the Gentiles. I don't think they were expecting this. They probably still believe because of their Jewish background and upbringing that Jesus had come for Israel only. And don't we do that to some degree with Jesus in that Jesus comes for this little group of people only? And this, he loves my denomination. And I, I know he doesn't like that one. And, you know, we categorize people and play that game. We're just like Peter. We do that. These people were blown away. They were not expecting this. Now look at how, these are the circumcised believers. Now look at how the Gentiles responded to the gospel and what most importantly there with the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 46 says they immediately began to bear spiritual fruit. What did they do? They extolled God in tongues. To extol means to lift up the name of God, to praise God out loud. Tongues is a reference, I looked it up, it's a reference to foreign languages. These people began to extol God in Spanish. There was nobody there that spoke Spanish. I don't know if it was Spanish, I doubt it, but it was something. These people began to speak in languages that were not indicative of their races. They began to speak, I mean, oui, oui, you know, all of a sudden. The French fry, you know. They, they began to burst forth in foreign languages. Not that, you know, she left them a Honda heaven talk stuff that we think exists that I firmly believe does not. But they began to speak in foreign languages, languages that they were not fluent in. They just began to speak in foreign languages. Now, why did God give these newly regenerated Gentile believers? They're now believers, man. The Spirit's in them. Why did he give them the gift of tongues or what we would say is the gift of languages? to persuade both Peter and his companions of their new faith. Remember, Peter had an issue with the idea of Gentiles becoming Christians, and so did his compadres. Still an issue there with them to some degree. So God wants to make it perfectly clear to Peter and those circumcised believers. And what do they do? They burst out 
in foreign languages, just as they did at Pentecost. You see the connection? That's what happened at the day of Pentecost. My wife says, don't say Pentecost. It's Pentecost. I'm like, Pentecost, Pentecost, whatever, whatever. I'm going with it. Pentecost, Pentecost. Remember what happened there? What happened there when those people got saved? They spoke in languages. Same thing here. Peter and his companions look out and they listen and they hear them speaking in these languages. Man, that dude wasn't speaking French a minute ago. They knew without a doubt that the Spirit had come upon these people, that these people were saved. So the reason was to persuade both Peter and his companions of the new faith that they had. They started speaking in these languages that were unfamiliar with. It was a miracle. Now, the Bible teaches that in the early days of the church, tongues were given as a sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So what happened when these people got the Holy Spirit and got saved? They had the sign that went with them in the early days, and that was tongues. And so that's what it means. They knew that they were saved. They were like, whoa. And that's why they were amazed. They could not believe that the Spirit had come upon these people. Blew them away. What fruit should accompany those who are in Christ today? Some say, man, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to go about speaking in, in strange angelic tongues. Well, I hope you caught our series on that like weeks ago, and months ago, I guess, and we talked about it in, in detail. I don't want to go into that too. Some say that's, that's the mark of the Holy Spirit. You know, man, you're going to speak in these tongues or, or you're going to do these strange and, and interesting things or whatever. Eh. Now, those things were a temporary sign. Let me tell you what fruit you should bear if you have the Spirit of God, if you have salvation. Real simple. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you know what these things are? They're the fruit of the Spirit. That's what's manifested in the life of a person. When a person becomes a new person in Christ, these are the things that they bear. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And guess what? They're going to be evangelistic. They're going to want to share their faith. I mean, there's going to be a lot of things present in the life of this person. A love of holiness a hatred for sin. These are the things that, that will notify us of a person of true saving faith. Now, filled with excitement, <laughs> Peter exclaimed, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Like, can we get some baptisms up in here? That's your modern day urban translation. Can we get some baptisms up in this mug? That's what he says. Who have received? He says, why would we baptize them? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Man, they're like us. They have the Spirit in them. They're saved. Here, as always in the New Testament, baptism follows salvation. Indeed, Peter's entire argument for baptizing Cornelius and the others rests on the fact that they had what? Received the Holy Spirit and therefore were what? Saved. You see, some are taught that in order for you to be saved, you have to be baptized. 
Well, that line of thinking and theology doesn't follow the line up here in this text or anywhere else in Scripture. Baptism follows salvation. A person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, awakened, enlivened, given life in the gospel, and then they seek to obey by displaying their faith publicly, by showing that they've been buried and raised with Christ through baptism. Peter then commanded, he's blown away, Peter then commanded his companions. He goes over and tells the ones who are amazed, you baptize them. I mean, they certainly can't baptize themselves. How do I do it? What do I do? Right? You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, like one of those birds, you know, with the pink stuff you put out there, the bird feeders. I mean, they can't. He says, okay, you guys, I know you're blown away. I know you're moonwalking. You're going crazy over here. This is new for you. But let's get some water and let, let's just take them out here and baptize them. He tells the circumcised believers to baptize Cornelius and everyone else in the name of Jesus. How exciting. Lastly, verse 48 says that Cornelius invited Peter and his companions to stay for a few days. There's nothing quite like the fellowship of the saints. What an opportunity for these new believers. And you remember what it was like when you were a new believer? I do. <laughs> it was kind of ugly, actually, because I'd go around telling everyone, you know, Jesus, you're going to go to hell. You need to believe. People would be like, okay. I, mean, I just didn't know how to present the gospel in love. Or anything else. That was pretty shallow. I didn't. I mean, what I, all I knew was I was saved, and all I could tell people was, I used to be this, now I'm this. Well, it's not such a bad thing, I guess, when you just tell them what you know, but think back to that time when you first come to know the Lord and how sweet it was to go to church and how sweet it was to have fellowship, how sweet it was to listen to sermons and to hear the word of God and to pray with other believers and to share your experiences and meals. Think of how sweet that was. Now think of how these people feel right now at this moment in history. And think of, think of the bonus that they have. They've got the apostle Peter who walked with Jesus. I love Peter. I'm most like him. I do fine things for the Lord. Then I jack myself up and hurt others. That's what he did. That's what we all do, right? We should all be able to relate to him. But he was still an apostle. He was still Jesus' right-hand man. He still loved the Lord. Even offered up his own life for Jesus. History tells us that he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified as the way that Jesus was in the same way. I mean, they had Peter there. What were the questions being asked? Man, you walked with Jesus. And tell me about that time he silenced that storm, man. We kind of heard about that over here in Caesarea. Thought it was like, you know, one, another one of those Hollywood movies. What went down, man? What was it like when, uh, when he went outside that, you know, that tomb and yelled, Lazarus, come out? What was that like, man? Hey, man, I'm, I'm a new Christian, and I know I'm probably going to fail at times and mess up, man. What was it like when you betrayed the Lord three times, when you denied him three times? What was it like? Well, let me tell you what it was like. Jesus was merciful. And guess what? You're going to do that too. He's going to be there for you. Just think of the fellowship they had. Falafels are us. <laughs> right? I mean, no, they were Greek, actually, so it was pork chops. 
Peter was like, I gotta go outside, <laughs> you know? It must have been beautiful. Such is the fellowship of the saints. It is a beautiful thing. There's nothing like it on earth. I want to encourage you to come tonight and have a meal with us. Next week, we will begin chapter 11. We've been in 10 for a while. So some of you are probably rejoicing. It's been a good study, though. I would encourage you, though, to, to read ahead so that God might prepare your heart for our time together. You know, what's always really cool is that God speaks to me and he, he gives me these insights and his truth and all that. And, and he speaks to you and he, he gives you everything basically that he's taught me. But he gives you your thoughts and ideas while you're sitting there. So you end up with more than I started with. So how cool would it be for you to read ahead and to study the word on your own, which I hope you do. And just look at chapter 11 and, and look at some of the difficulty that's coming. Because when the word of all of this gets back to Jerusalem... People are not cool with the idea that Gentiles got saved. And there's going to be all kinds of drama. And God is good. Because he's victorious all the time. He's going to change people's hearts in that chapter too. We're going to have a time of communion together just to celebrate the Lord's goodness to us. Um, and to reflect on and to remember what he did. That his work is a finished work. That we don't have to do anything to earn our way with him. We can rejoice in the fact that we have the Holy Spirit. If you do today, you're in Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit, man. What a miracle and amazing thing that is. You can rejoice in all of that, that it's all Him. Most importantly, don't forget what those elements symbolize. His spilt blood for the remission of your sin and His broken body. He was beaten and broken for you. Crushed for your transgressions, for your sins. And you can even remember his resurrection, which is so exciting. That is what empowers our life and ministry. If you're a Christian couple, that's what empowers your marriage. If you're a Christian student, that's what empowers your studies. I mean, that, 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 is, that is our power. It comes through the presence of the Holy Spirit through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's remember those things as we take these elements. Let's remember that Jesus, it's all about him, that he paid the price, that he did it all. And what we need to do is accept the reality that he did it all and we need to just rest in him. We need to seek after him and to come to know him more, to grow in the grace and knowledge of who he is. That's what we're to do, not go out and try to earn our way or do a bunch of good things. We will do good things if we're in him. And we'll do them for the right reason, out of love for him, not because we're trying to earn something, not because we're weighing the scales. We have been reconciled to God by the marvelous work of Jesus Christ. We are at peace with God because of his work. Rejoice in that. Take this communion celebrating those things. Father God, thank you for your word. It is a mighty sword. It cuts to the deepest parts of who we are, Lord. And when it is swung and applied by the Holy Spirit, people get saved. And your saints are sanctified, transformed further, a further transformation into your image, which is the goal of salvation, is to make us like you, Jesus. That's what you want to do, God. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit has fallen upon every soul in this room. That those who do not yet know you would come to know you in this very moment. Because of your grace. Because of your spirit. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done here today. May we remember what these elements represent. Ultimately, they represent our freedom in you, Jesus.
May we celebrate together. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Help yourselves, friends. The elements are on the, the wings over there. We'll have a few more songs and we'll be done.